If you were to pick a single moment in modern American political history where everything went wrong, I would say 1992. In 1992, I refused to leave my bed because George Herbert Walker Bush lost the presidency to Bill Clinton. I was seven years old. My parents were very confused. Both of them voted for Ross Perot because they hate themselves, I guess. In any case, they had to wait until I fell back asleep in order to remove me from the bed where I had been wrapped around one of the lower posts and take me to school, where I managed to struggle through the day in an abject stupor, horrified that the country that I loved selected a morally bankrupt weenie, President of the United States, over one of the most experienced, stable, and intelligent men to ever occupy the West Wing. It did not help that I didn't know a single other person who was upset by this event. My parents, both registered Democrats, not super fond of Bill Clinton, but as I mentioned, somehow self-loathing enough that they voted for Ross Perot. Every classmate I had was a Democrat. My teachers were Democrats. The rest of my family were all registered Democrats. I was the only Republican that I knew. Eventually, I realized the Eagle Scout that lived across the street from me was also fairly conservative. He gifted me, after hearing of my extreme reaction... A bumper sticker, which said, don't blame me, I voted for Bush. I hung it over my bed, because I would never have a bumper to put it on, and I have it still. That bumper sticker got me through some tough times. As a forward-thinking, moderate fellow, I ended up doing a lot of explaining for the Republican Party in the intervening years. In high school, I had to get into regular lunchtime arguments. In college, I was spat at, yelled at, screamed at, cursed at and called pretty much every name under the sun, except for ones, of course, that were specific to my race or gender, because as a white guy, I get to avoid those sorts of things. I attended the Republican National Convention in 2004. Leaving the convention one day, I had a shoe thrown at me by an angry protester. It was upsetting. Not so much that the shoe was thrown at me, but that people apparently have that kind of bad aim from that range. We need to focus on baseball more in this country. Still, I relished the opportunity to get involved in serious conversation with individuals of intellectual merit. I would engage with anyone, regardless of political opinion, even if they were godless, disgusting communists. Because I believed in my heart of hearts that the Republican Party's ideas were better. That government wasn't bad. It was just bad at doing things. It wasn't evil. It was just incompetent. The private market was better at providing solutions. And yes, I disagreed with the more socially conservative aspects of my party platform. But I was willing to accept that because the Democratic Party disagreed with me on more issues. If I agreed with the Republicans on 70% of things and the Democratic Party with 30% of things, I was willing to side with the Republicans. Even if that meant apologizing every once in a while for abject homophobia... And, well, let's just say questionable policies about racial issues. I did not believe the Republican Party was racist or homophobic, but I did believe that there were people supporting the Republican Party that were racist and homophobic. My assumption was that eventually the Republican Party would come around to its own economic position on social issues. The government that governs less governs best. That convinced me that in the future, my beloved Republican Party would see the light on the social issues that I disagreed with them on. In high school and college, I knew far more people that differed from Republican orthodoxy on a variety of issues than I knew Democrats that were willing to stray from the Democratic line. We were the big tent. You could be pro-choice or pro-life. You could be pro-gay marriage. You could be against gay marriage. You could be a variety of issues, whereas the Democrats enforced a strict ideological rigidity upon their members. 
Did we have kooks? Of course we had kooks. We had lunatics. We had crazies of all variety. But our lunatic kook crazies were off in that far distant southern reach in the swamps in Appalachia and in places where I didn't have to care about them. They weren't in the party establishment. God bless the establishment. In the Democratic Party, the lunatics were running the asylum out there, and I couldn't imagine that lasting for very, very long. And then 2016 rolled around. And the world became a very strange and cold and terrible place. You see, Bernhard Sanders was defeated in the Democratic primary in favor of the calm, stable, somewhat corrupt, but still mostly just boring establishmentarian that was Hillary Clinton. And the Republican Party was seized from within by the kooks. My beloved establishment, fronted by Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and, hell, even at the end, Kasich and Ted Cruz, were vanquished by a man with the intellectual fortitude and emotional stability of a third grader who has just been given a large number of pixie sticks and taught a bunch of dirty words. We are literally living in a country that is being run, officially, by a person who inspired the bad guy in the Back to the Future movies. A man whose name is synonymous with vulgarity and excess and gold-plated bullcrap. <sighs> it took me somewhere between 14 and 15 minutes to vote in 2016. Not to get into the voting booth. To actually vote with the paper in my hands. I just couldn't bring myself to bubble in Hillary Clinton's name. I ended up doing it, of course, because I'm an adult. Being an adult means making actual decisions. Voting for a third-party candidate is for communists and people with weak handshakes. But it was still very difficult for me. In 1992, Hillary Clinton's husband started this mess by replacing stable, calm leadership with third-rate CNN tomfoolery. The 24-hour news cycle, Monica Lewinsky, scandal after scandal after scandal. But I did it. Because that's what grown-ups do. And I was comfortable with that fact, thinking that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And then Hillary Clinton lost. And Donald Trump became the president. And because third parties are for people who stand on the left side of the escalator and don't move all the way into a subway car, I have been forced to re-register as a Democrat. I'm a man without a country. I've been left adrift from everything that I once knew. And thus, we get this, this podcast. Welcome to Republican in Exile. This is the show. I'd rather be right than presidential. Let other folks fight for heights above. What do I fight for just to be right for? I'd rather be right, just right about love. Welcome to Republican in Exile, a half-hour exercise in self-torture where I, your much-loved and much-loathed host, attempts to sift through another week of trash that pours out of Washington like a fountain built in a landfill. I'm Matthew Hedge, and this week we're going to be going over a series of horrors and other terrible events that have left me oh so frustrated and caused me to drink heavily. <laughs> Speaking of which, this week I'm consuming a large number of Moscow mules. 
I thought it was the most patriotic drink I could have in the Trump era. They're, well, got quite a kick to them. The song you're listening to right now is I'd Rather Be Right from a musical that no one remembers, but somehow I do, in which FDR helps young couple find love. God bless the Works Progress Administration. Well, this is the first officially broadcast episode of Republican in Exile. Hooray! Huzzah! And other things that might indicate that I'm still alive inside. If you're joining me for the very first time, congratulations, you're like everyone else. I've been doing these shows pretty consistently since the 1700s or so, uh, but I've never actually put them out there for public consumption. This has been sort of my private therapy, and welcome to it. Every week I'm going to come at you with this week's horrors, a rundown of all of the things that have made me want to bang my head against a wall so hard that a substance resembling guacamole starts pouring out of my ears. We'll cap it off with... The outrage of the week, the thing that made me want to strangle someone to death the most. And we'll finish off with a little bit of good news and then a way for you to try and look smart this week. Although, I should once again warn you, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, so uh, take everything I say with a grain of salt. So without further ado, let's just jump right into this week's horrors. Oh boy. Well, the CBO put out figures this week indicating that the GOP Senate health care plan is going to be shitty. That's a real shocker. See, the problem is that President Trump... Oh, God, I hate saying that. The problem is that President Trump said that his goal was to expand coverage and make everything cheaper for everyone. Here's the problem. You can't actually do that without some kind of socialistic health care plan. So every single health care plan the Republicans come up with is going to fail at that goal. The American people demand a lot from their government. They want low taxes and lots of services. It is good to have high standards. It is also impossible to have that happen without enormous budget deficits, which we're going to have all the time forever. I still think the Republican health care plan is going to pass the Senate, largely because uh, Mitch McConnell is very good at getting legislation through. He's going to bribe an awful lot of senators with big, big payouts. We'll see exactly who gets what out of this thing, but uh, I'm looking at maybe a 50-50 vote coming out of the Senate with Mike Pence, our deeply religious vice president, having to cast the tiebreaker. Should be a world of fun. Like Betsy DeVos, but a whole bunch of people die. (laughs) Anyway, Narinda Modi visited the White House this week. That's super exciting for everyone involved. Narinda Modi, the leader of the largest democracy on Earth, India, is a man who Donald Trump should be able to get along with very, very well. They are both extreme nationalists who happen to hate the large minority populations that live in their countries. Lots of anti-Muslim attacks currently going on in India by the Hindu majority population that are credited largely to Narendra Modi's popularity and lack of effort to stop these attacks from occurring. It's like looking into a horrifying vision of the future, except everyone's Indian and... There's no Mexicans involved, I guess? Yeah, that's about it. On an economic front, Modi and Trump probably won't get along at all. Modi wants more businesses to start investing in India, whereas Trump wants, well, every business that invests in India from the United States of America to return those jobs to the United States. Something that will never happen! Since the pair are so stylistically close, they should have lots and lots to talk about for the three or four minutes that Trump's attention span will tolerate him talking to another human being. We'll see how that goes. 
The Supreme Court has allowed the president's travel ban to actually go into effect this summer before the Supreme Court rules on this damn thing sometime in September. Here's why this is incredibly infuriating. The travel ban was only supposed to stay in effect for 90 days. Donald Trump has been president for 162 days as of the recording of this program. He shouldn't need any more time. The idea behind the original travel ban was that we put a pause on immigration so that the United States government can come up with a more stringent vetting system. Extreme vetting, as the administration was very fond of putting it. If they still need more time to put that into effect, they are very late with their homework and should probably serve some time in detention, if not being expelled. The fact of the matter is that this travel ban was not about finding a more extreme vetting program. It was about being anti-immigrant and specifically anti-Muslim immigrant. The Miller and Bannon factions in the White House don't like non-Christian immigrants to the United States of America. That's the charitable interpretation. It's entirely possible they don't like any immigrants that aren't white people from Western Europe. This is, of course, madness. The entire purpose of the United States of America is to see if all of the various ethnic and national groups from all over the world can live under a single umbrella united by a glorious ideology of freedom. Bannon and Miller's position is nation-statism. It is European retrogressive anti-American philosophy. We are not a nation of people. We are a nation of ideas and ideals, and that is what this country has always stood for, uh, give or take a day. The Secretary of State apparently had to go nuclear on a number of White House aides, including Stephen Miller, he of the anti-immigrant philosophy. In essence, the State Department, as Politico put it, had to break off diplomatic relations with the White House, screaming at Jared Kushner, Miller, and Reese Priebus, over the fact that the White House is in essence running its own foreign policy outside of the State Department. Rex Tillerson's accustomed to being, well, fairly autocratic. He was the CEO of ExxonMobil, one of the largest and most successful corporations in the world. The fact that he has to respond to borderline mental incompetence like Kushner must be very frustrating for him. The thing that kicked all of this off was, of course, a letter from the White House claiming that the Assad regime in Syria was seconds away from using chemical weapons again on their own people, and that the White House would respond to that. Tiny problem. The Department of Defense and the Secretary of State's office did not approve this message, and when the Assad regime, well, did nothing, the White House took that as a victory. You know it would be super useful in circumstances like this? If the American people had any trust whatsoever in the White House! This statement was put out by the office of one Sean Spicer, a man who, if he told me the sky was blue, I would double-check just to make sure it was right. This administration has all the credibility of a used car dealer that you found on Craigslist. There isn't a reason in this world to believe that anything that they say isn't a heaping wad of crap. If they can't tell the truth about the size of crowds at the inauguration or very basic facts about things the president has said in the past, how can they tell the truth about foreign policy? They can't. Dear God. We're all doomed. Well, coming up next is this week's outrage. But before we do that... 
Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. How's that? My producer Jonathan is saying that we have no sponsors, and I'm just doing this for fun. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Well, we've come to this week's outrage, the thing that has made me the most furious this week, and as it's probably going to be for the rest of time, it's the president's Twitter account. The president of the United States is getting into juvenile spats with TV personalities on Twitter this week, lambasting Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough for having the temerity to oppose him in any way, shape, or form, or even criticize his rule. I had a friend recently say to me, well, if Donald Trump wasn't tweeting, would he be a decent president? And to that, I would say, uh, no, he'd be awful. Lots of people act as if Donald Trump's Twitter account is the root cause of these problems, that it is the disease that drives forward the horror that we're seeing on the news. It is not the disease. It is a symptom. You don't die from sneezing. You die from the flu that you've contracted. Trump's Twitter account is a pure reflection of who he is as a human being, and who he is as a human being is awful. The impulsive, reckless way he goes after completely unimportant human beings is completely reflective of who he is as the president of the United States. We have put someone in the White House with little to no impulse control or ability to regulate what he does on a daily basis. The man is not playing 13-dimensional chess. He is not tweeting as a way to distract us. The smoke is the fire. It's not indicating that there's something else going on behind the curtain that you need to pay attention to. There is no man behind the curtain. There is just an enormous floating head screaming at a small girl with nice shoes. Now, if your knee-jerk reaction to that is to tell me I'm wrong, no, Trump is brilliant, Trump is planning something, Trump is distracting us from his rulings in the health care bill, I have two words for you. Kate's Law. While all of this lunacy has been going down, where Donald Trump has been claiming that Mika Brzezinski was somehow bleeding in front of him from a facelift, something that no plastic surgeon would actually allow her to do, the United States House of Representatives was voting on a signature piece of legislation that Trump campaigned on. Kate Steinle was murdered by an illegal immigrant by the name of Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez who was protected by San Francisco sanctuary laws from deportation, despite the fact the man had been convicted of multiple felonies and had a detainer request from ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement. This should be a huge victory for the President of the United States of America. He campaigned against illegal immigrants, saying that they were violent and vicious. This law was passed bipartisanly. 24 Democrats crossed the aisle to vote for this law in the House. And I gotta tell you, I think this thing's gonna pass the Senate as well. Do you know who's talking about this law? No one, except for me, right now. And maybe some right-wing pundits who are PO'd that no one's paying attention to their little anti-immigrant crusade. The reason no one's paying attention to this is Donald Trump decided to get on Twitter and start punching down. He decided to start attacking the media. He decided to start making a royal ass out of himself all over the place. And this is the problem with Donald Trump. He can't control himself. We have made a toddler the president. When Richard Nixon went to China in 1972, he went into a hostile environment 
and through personal manipulation and finesse, he changed the course of world history. He made China an ally of the United States instead of an enemy. When Donald Trump went to Europe not too long ago, he very nearly destroyed every transatlantic alliance that we have and brought the greater Western world to the brink of destruction. He is a disaster for the United States of America. He's a disaster for the West. He's a disaster for every human being living in a free country because he is stupid. He bumbles into every situation assuming that he knows exactly what to do even though the man couldn't pass a high school civics class. Just a few hours ago, Donald Trump tweeted, quote, My use of social media is not presidential. It is modern-day presidential. Make America great again. Here's the fun thing, Donnie. Making America great again means restoring the classical values. You can't be the future and the past simultaneously, you horses patoo. But then again, what should we expect from Donald Trump? We knew he had no political experience. We knew that he had a hair-trigger temper. The other day, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, daughter of a terrible governor and a terrible press secretary herself, said that the American people knew what they were getting when they voted for Donald Trump, and that is correct. That is the most essentially true thing I think anyone behind that podium has said in a very, very long time. The American people knew that Donald Trump couldn't be presidential. A lot of them tricked themselves into thinking Donald Trump could be presidential, that he was worthy of the office we were putting him in. He's not. He never will be. We're going to experience American carnage, to borrow a phrase from Donald Trump himself, for the next four years. He's not capable of doing the things that a president needs to do. He's not capable of being calm. He's not capable of bringing things together. He's capable of driving people apart. He's capable of feeding into the very worst impulses of humanity, but he is not capable of being presidential. I know lots of decent people who voted for Donald Trump. I've heard their explanations. They liked his tax plans. Hillary Clinton's emails. They didn't want to vote for a Democrat. The Supreme Court. Lots of explanations for why people might vote for Donald Trump for president. What I have yet to hear is an excuse. Explanations are not excuses. They do not excuse your behavior. Just because you had a logical thought process leading up to a terrible thing that you did does not actually mean that I forgive you for doing it. Man comes home after cheating on his wife and he tells her, Well, honey, I was drunk and horny. That's a very good explanation for what happened. It is not an excuse. America got drunk, and they pulled the lever for someone who is thoroughly repulsive. You hated Hillary Clinton? Congratulations. So did half of the people that voted for her. There was no excuse to vote for Donald Trump unless you have devoted every second of your life to the cause of opposing abortion. If you really think abortion is genocide and you have dedicated every single second of your life to that cause, and I mean every single second, if you think there's a genocide going on in your own country and you are not working round the clock to stop it, you're a bad person. But if you're one of those people who deeply morally feels that abortion is genocide and has been working round the clock to stop it, then maybe, maybe I buy you voting for Donald Trump as an excuse. But even then, how the hell do you trust that man to follow through with his word? You don't. You can't. It's over. We, the American people, have done a terrible, terrible thing to our country in making an unprepared lunatic, 
the President of the United States of America. And by the by, if you are a liberal Democrat who is smugly sitting there nodding to yourself, ask yourself right now, did you vote for Barack Obama for President of the United States of America? Because you've done pretty close to the same thing. Without the crazy, Barack Obama had been a United States Senator for less than two years when he announced he was going to run for President of the United States of America. Is that the kind of experience you want in the White House? We turned the presidency over to one very inexperienced person, and then a person with no experience. Donald Trump would have to apply for a waiver to call himself inexperienced, as opposed to non-experienced. And Trump shows that every time he tweets something out. The first two years of the Obama presidency were a train wreck. His inexperience dripped out of the White House. Donald Trump is like Barack Obama on coke. Huh. Now, a lot of Republicans have gone after Donald Trump for tweeting that stuff at Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough, that it was unpresidential, that they were ashamed that he should stop doing it. Of course, the Republicans are going to take no action against him at all. Ever. From the Republican congressional perspective, they had a choice between two bosses. They had a boss who was competent, but didn't want them to continue on projects that were important to them. And on the other side, they had a boss who was an unhinged, sexist, racist, oversized Oompa Loompa. But that oversized Oompa Loompa happened to want the same things that they wanted, at least that's what they were claiming, and choosing between competent but opposed, and deranged, but possibly in favor, they pick deranged. I don't care how many times Paul Ryan claims that he's offended by what the president says. So long as the president is still in office and Paul Ryan continues to do his bidding, Paul Ryan is approving of everything Donald Trump does. <gasps> That's the reason I had to leave the Republican Party, because... By standing behind him, even if you're claiming you oppose what he says, if you stand behind him, you are giving him a blank check to continue to behave in a reprehensible manner, and the American people should not stand for that anymore. The international and domestic political scene are messier than they have been in years. ISIS is blowing up whole mosques in Iraq, let alone ancient artifacts. There are seven U.S. sailors who died in an accident off the coast of Japan. There is major health legislation stalled in the Senate. The country of Venezuela is collapsing to the point of which they will be in civil war by the time I am done with this sentence. There is terrorism in Europe. North Korea is threatening to nuke everyone they can reach. And Donald Trump is attacking the hosts of Morning Joe on Twitter. It's repugnant, and it should stop. Well, after all that cheerfulness, let's talk about good news. Yay, good news. This week, Governor Andrew Cuomo declared a state of emergency in the New York City subway system. Yeah, that's the point we've reached. A state of emergency is good news to me. Why was a state of emergency necessary? Well, it's a crisis of leadership caused by Andrew Cuomo and our equally incompetent mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio. Come to think of it, it makes perfect sense that Donald Trump came out of New York. Oh my God. I think I owe Ted Cruz an apology. During the campaign, Ted Cruz said Donald Trump represented New York values. Maybe this is what he meant. That he was an oversized, overjumped lunatic who couldn't solve basic problems. Huh. I should send him a postcard. Still, the state of emergency means that money and effort will finally flow into New York's terrible transit problem. Hopefully, they'll manage to upgrade that 100-year-old signaling system we have, or maybe complete the 2nd Avenue subway line, which has been under construction 
since 1929. Don't hold your breath. Well, this brings us to the final portion of today's show, How to Look Smart This Week, in which I attempt to give you some kind of vision of what the next week's worth of news stories will look like. Next week, Donald Trump will meet in person with Vladimir Putin. You heard that correctly. Donald Trump is going to head off to Europe and have himself a little tete-a-tete with his boss. I mean, with the president of the Russian Federation. No, no, I meant the first thing. His boss. This is going to be big. The Trump administration, on one hand, has been very desirous of closer ties with the Russian government, particularly given the fight against ISIS in the Middle East. On the other hand... The Trump administration and Putin have had some friction both over ongoing investigations in the United States as to whether or not Donald Trump definitely absolutely took help from the Russian government and over the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Exactly what happens between those two, no one can guess. Either they're going to punch each other, start making out, or just shake hands and smile for the camera. Probably that last one. The first two would be more amusing. We'll see. That's about it for us here at Republican in Exile. If you want to reach us, we are R-I-E-Podcast at gmail.com, R-I-E-Podcast on Twitter, and just old Republican in Exile on Facebook. That's right, we got to Republican Exile on Facebook, but couldn't manage to get that name on Gmail or Twitter. Whoever has it, we're going to hunt you down, and we may hurt you. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, queries, feel free to send them along. Spew your lunacy at me and I will respond with lunacy of my own. Until next week, I'm Matthew Hedge, and this has been Republican in Exile. Uh, try not to die.